podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, 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 welcome again back to Dishonomic Podcast, episode 19, I believe, I really don't know why I don't know what episode we're on, but it is what it is. Anyway, yeah, let's get into it. Um, This one, it's called Fake News, we've all heard a term, like, there's a lot of information being bounded around, especially with social media now, technology at all-time high, and it's quite hard to filter through what is legitimate news and it's accurate and what's not. Like, I'll give you an example of fake news, that Nigerian men are bad. Of course, fake news, alternative facts. There's no evidence to back that up. Not enough personal accounts or reliable sources to back that up either. But that's a conversation for another day. So yeah, I've got a few things that I will describe as fake news. Some of it might just be point blank, just fake news. Or some of it is like, hmm the public perception may not actually be as accurate as we like to think it is. So, yeah, let's get into it. Um, Number one, or the first one, zero-hour contracts and how evil they are and how we must put a stop to them. First things first, in a total jobs market, in total employment, zero-hour contracts, or what people describe themselves on as zero-hour contracts, excuse my English, that's awful, but that's a key point. It's, it only accounts for 2.8% of the total employment. That's around 900,000 jobs per year. Now, if you think about this, a lot of people actually didn't know they were, didn't know that what the contract they had could be described as a zero-hour contract. As this term became more popular and gained more awareness, more and more people, in terms of, in terms of job surveys, were describing themselves under this form of contract. If you look at it in 2015, only 6% of total contracts didn't, of total zero contracts didn't guarantee any hours whatsoever. Also, it's important to note that one person can, could hold multiple zero contracts. It's not like you're on your full-time permanent job where obviously you've got a commitment to 37 to 40 or however hours have however many hours a week you work obviously you can't have multiple ones of those because you don't have enough time in the day but with zero, with zero hour contracts you can hold three or four or five or i'm not too sure how many people hold so that's something to bear in mind also if you actually look at the figures in terms of like when people who are under zero hour contracts are surveyed it's not what you think for example 65 percent of people on zero hour contracts are actually working part time hours. So everybody's like, oh, it's so bad. We all hear horror stories, don't get me wrong. Some companies could really, really take the Michael with zero hour contracts and put people in poor working conditions. They can't really, you know, um, plan their, their schedule around their working arrangements. I'm not saying this doesn't happen, but I'm saying it's important to know the full picture and how most cases are a bit more positive than the media or some people lead you to believe. Yes, yeah, so as I say, 65% of people actually work part-time hours. So although they're on a zero-hour contract, the, the, the amount of hours they're actually working is more in line of part-time, part-time figures. And if, you are, and if you look at the 
total number of people working zero contracts and for those who've been surveyed 60% of zero hour contract workers don't actually want more hours that's if you take 10 random zero hour contract workers 6 out of them are like we're cool with our hours do you see what I'm saying so if we've seen our politicians around using as political political um, political bullets saying yeah I want to get rid of rid of zero hour contracts are evil not mention certain names if you actually look at the data it doesn't quite add up these people are happy with their hours they don't actually want more a significant proportion of them are on part time hours anyway and if you delve even deeper into the data called data as like some, some jobless Americans like to say one in three People on zero-hour contracts are in between the ages of 16 to 24. And what are most people doing in between the ages of 16 and 24? Likely to be under some form of higher education, maybe university, or they may be in sixth form of college. And also, when you're in between the ages of 16 and 24, the likelihood of you having responsibilities we have to provide for a family or provide for your actual self individually with no additional help is also quite low. And then even... 18% of people on zero-hour contracts are in full-time education anyway. So it kind of suits them, kind of works around their hours. So that's one of the things that I believe is kind of reported on as fake news. Number two, food banks. We've Especially with this election, we've seen the emotional blackmail that some political parties are doing with stuff like, oh, yeah, nurse, nurses having to use food banks, blah, blah, blah. Or the rise of food banks show the dire state of how things are in the UK. I think that is extremely overstated. There's not enough data to back that up, which I want to get into in a second. I am aware that there's been a rise in the cost of living. I say on every podcast, and there's also been a decrease in our in the growth of our real wages. That much is evident. But to use food banks as as hard evidence to why people aren't people how people aren't earning as much and especially attributing to nurses when there's absolutely no data linking to it i think it's insane for example when you go to a food bank you're not signing a, you're not signing a form saying yeah this is my this is my job i'm a world i'm a world champion table tennis player or, or i'm a do-rag rapper whatever you do like you don't fully you there's no information that you need to fill out stating your profession when you're using these services if we look at um, the Trust or Trust, they're the largest network of food banks in the UK. The actual rise in the amount of usage has been astronomical. So, in 2005-6, they, provided, they um, distributed under 3,000 food supply packs. In 2016-17, this went up to 1.2 million. So, from 3,000 to 1.2 million. The moving, the moving food packs are our chapel out there. Food bank usage in the UK is actually more limited than people think. Even that 1.2 number does not mean 1.2 million people use food banks. That means they distributed 1.2 million packs packages. One person could use it on multiple occasions. So, if I use it ten times, I'll be counted. I'll be counted as ten times. Well, obviously, I'm 
actually one person using it. And also, and we can't really over rely on this data as well because this is just from the largest um, food bank net- network, Trustful Trust. If you're using the next food bank, your data isn't recorded in this. I'm not, I'm not sure if people know how it works, but I believe that you need a food voucher which is issued by a doctor or a social worker. And I think like um, job centres can do some form of signposting that kind of leads you on to getting this. Over 20 years, if you're looking at Trussell Trust, their food banks went up in numbers from just one to 427. Common sense will tell you, if you only have one food bank, now you have 427, you're going to distribute more packages. That's why the number went from 3,000 to 1.2 billion. Makes sense. Let's take, let's say, for example, they opened a food bank in Stratford and, and they opened it in, let's say, 2016. And loads of people used it. There was a high amount of packages drops. That doesn't mean that in 2016, the people that live in Stratford suddenly become worse off. It could be, but they're not. The data doesn't really show that. It just, it could just be that people in Stratford never had this service available to them, and now all of a sudden they do. There's been a rise in the awareness of the availability of food banks. In 2011, job centre staff didn't even signpost people to food banks, and now they do. So if there's a rise in awareness and there's a rise in supply, naturally there's going to be a rise in actual usage of the food banks. Don't get me wrong, this could also be poverty-driven. This also could just be supply-driven. But there isn't enough hard data to point us into a direction that the media has led us to believe. In 2016 40% of these referrals to these food, to trust or trust food banks were due to some form of problem with benefits. So benefit payments. So let's say there's been a change in benefits or there's been delays, and obviously you're relying on this, on this benefit to survive in terms of your food and stuff, then people can be referred to food banks to kind of make up for the gap in this um, in your benefits. Don't so and and another forty percent is due to stuff that you can you can describe as traditional poverty. So that's people with low income homes, people who are homeless, or people who have a lot of debts. So we don't know enough to speak with them, but what we do know is that there's been a rise in supply, which could really have um, impacted the rise in usage, rather than there being a massive demand for it. Okay, the next one. Tuition fees deterring students. Yes, um, I think from 2016 to now, or from 2015 to 2016, sorry, there was like a 4% drop in total, total university applicants. But this was mainly due to, this can be attributed to Brexit. And if you look at stuff like um, the overseas students, it's a bit more difficult now. You, there's not much certainty. And obviously there's been a rise, um, there's been a decrease in the number of like, Adult students, older students applying for university. Obviously, if they're not going to take the student loan, they have to pay the tuition fee themselves. The cost has gone up um, 300%, so it's going to put them off. However, if you actually look at the core group of applicants to universities, which tend to be um, kids age 18, the number is still rising. Regardless of the increase in tuition fees, it is still rising. The applicant, even for, I've seen, um, even recently, I've seen people saying, yeah, 
the Tories, blah blah blah, right? So pushing fees is bad for like working class slash poor people. Well, according to data, the applicant rate for quote unquote disadvantaged young people was actually at a record high in twenty fifteen. So the data isn't really matching up. Seventy, in fact, in terms of debts itself, debts itself, seventy seventy three percent of grads on this current um, tuition fee um, scheme are expected to have debts written off compared to that of 32% on the older system. More than double. I think how tuition fees are discussed is quite sickening to me. It's just reeks of lack of information on budget propaganda and it just makes me sick. First things first, what is going to disadvantage a quote-unquote poorer student from going to university? It's not tuition fees because you get a loan to pay that tuition fee. And the way that loan is paid back is like is payback like a tax. So once you start working and you're earning over a certain amount, you get you pay back a um, percentage. So for example, I calculated it. I put it on my social media the other day. If you're earning, I think it's thirty grand. After let's say you finish university, you're earning thirty grand a year, which is pretty pretty amazing if you left university. Well done if you're on them on them vibes. You're paying about you're paying back around sixty pound a month in terms of student loan. And people describe these debts as a burden. Some people pay more on their EE bill, so they need to allow it. They probably need to allow it. People pay more on Vapianos and Uber Eats. People like me. So I'm not trying to hear any of that type of talk. Student loan debt is not like the debt that we see on TV or we hear about. It's not like, okay, cool, you finish university, let's see your total loans are like 45k. Theresa May doesn't send a bag of man to your house, say, yo, where's our peas? If we're not paying us, we're going to take the TV, we're going to take a straightener, it's going to take a little brother's PS4. No, it's not like that. It's taken once you start earning. And it's taken a certain proportion with a relatively small interest rate. And if you go to university and study a degree that the jobs market wants or it can help you lead on to increase your earning potential, then it's actually a good debt because it's lead that debt is actually causing is enabling you to go and earn more money long term. So I don't like the stigma that's gone on with um, tuition fees. However, what can stop quote unquote working class um, poorer students is more the maintenance. So you're having some students whose loans and mates and grants and stuff don't cover their cost of living. For example, when I went to university, which was actually nine years ago wow a long time ago i went to university of birmingham and i was in student accommodation after i so my loan installment so let's say my first semester i got my loan after i paid for halls i had 73 pound left or 173 pound left what am i doing 173 pound after my books when i saw the books or a bill i was like yikes thank god that i worked in the summer and i saved up some money and that's why students tend to utilize overdraft and fall into credit card traps and stuff like that because they have they'll try to work and but try to balance the work and study life balance. And sometimes some of these halls, especially in places like Birmingham and London, are so extortionate. It's very difficult for people to maintain a standard of living while studying. So yeah, that's just the tuition fees and my little tuition fee rent. Um, immigration. Immigrants are evil, they're taking our jobs, they're ruining the economy, blah, 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 blah. Fake news. Okay, first things first. A migrant, an immig- migrant coming into the UK is more likely to be at a working age. 
This is very, very key, especially for those who listen to my podcast about the NHS. If they're coming at a working age, they are likely to be a net contributor to the economy. So those are people who, what they actually put into the economy is actually more than what they're taking out. So this is very, very important, especially for our tax pool, because if you look at NHS, we're having less and less net contributors than we, do, than we had before, because obviously with the increase in um, technology, advancements in healthcare, human beings are living longer than ever. I think even literally two days ago, I saw the, I think for women, the life expectancy is now 83.4, something like that. And the life expectancy for men is 79, 79.5. So the life expectancy is increasing, increasing. So the older people live, the more likely they are to continue to use public services, especially the NHS. And there's less people to pay taxation to cover those costs. And then you even add in the fact that the cost of medicine rises at an exponential rate. We need more and more people who are willing and able to contribute in terms of taxation. Yeah, and oh yeah, back to the point. So the, if migrants are likely to be at a working age, they're going to increase the labour force, which is also an increased competition, which is good for the economy in terms of growth. Also, the more people in the country the more people there are to demand goods and services. If this increases aggregate demand, which also, I'm sure I've explained that before, and I'm not, I don't want to go into it. Anyone who wants to know more information, they can just ask me. Which increases aggregate demand and also incre- increases um, um, real GDP. They also increase the supply of labour. They also increase the demand of labour. So, let migration is likely to lead to rising our our GDP so it's likely to boost our economy also immigration helps increase our labour market um, flexibility for example the surge of Eastern Europeans recently has helped to address and fit the gap in the market in terms of semi-skilled work I think there's currently more than 1 million Eastern Europeans in the UK who are actually working 49,000 came in came in July to September literally post-Brexit last year and also, as I was saying before, the depend, um, I'll explain the dependency ratio. I kind of touched on it beforehand. Dependency ratio is basically the number of kids, so that's people ages 0 to 15, plus the number of pensioners, so that's people above the retirement age, and they divide it by the working age, that's 16 to 65. This shows how many people are economically in- inactive. And as I said before, that's a strain on the government. Immigration helps that. They help... They help increase economic activity, which helps fund government expenditure. Migrants are more likely to pay income tax and VAT, and they're also less likely to pay benefits. So they're a clear net positive on the on the UK economy. So the talk about immigration and trying to use some of the terrorist attacks to show that, oh my God, these people can't come into our country because they're causing crime. It's just ridiculous. Um, I'm going to run through a few more. Um, some, are so, some more social, some more economical, some more um, pop culture. Um, wage The wage gap, I, want, I'm, I really want to do a podcast on this. I want to do it soon. But first of all, it's important to just, um, understand that wages and earnings are two different things. Secondly, if you look at, um, that, if you look at figures or data... 
men are likely to work more hours than women. So obviously, the more hours you work, the more likely you are to get paid. I think personally, women just make better life decisions than men. That's why they tend to live longer than us. <laughs> so if if we look at the wage gap, which is often used to kind of highlight um, discrimination between men and women, I think the actual analysis itself, I think is very lazy in, in my opinion. First things first, before anyone comes to shout and talk jazz to me, I do not be, I'm not for one minute saying that women do not get discriminated in a workplace from men. I have seen it with my own eyes. They're also, is there discrimination in terms of pay? More than likely, I would not be surprised either. But if we're looking at, if you also compare the total amount of money women make to, to the total amount of money men make, let's say in the UK economy, I think that's such a stupid thing to do. First things first, we tend to do different careers and work different hours. Men tend to dominate the higher income industries such as um, investment banking, um, engineering, IT, etc. And women tend to dominate the kind of um, lower end um, pay, pay, um, pay sectors. So if as a man you're working, let's say 60% of you are working in one industry, you're likely to get paid more. And also, even when you look at um, pay between two employees, like I, me and my best friend, who could be a guy, we could both go for the same job in the same company, they have two openings, we both get it. We can still get paid five grand differently and it could be perfectly justified because your pay grade is not just on... It's not just on your how nice your CV is. If you have different skills, different qualifications, different um, experience... And also how you negotiate could determine your wage. So if somebody, let's say we're both accountants, I've done four of my accountancy exams and he's fully qualified. Um, he's been working in um, accountancy firms for five years. I've been working for one year. He's got um, advanced Excel, advanced SAP, exam, advanced um, Oracle on his and I've got basic. He's, gonna have, he's shown on his CV and probably the interview process. He's more qualified than me. He's had more experience. He's got more skills than me. He's going to get paid more than me. So I think when you're looking at wage gaps, you have to drill into the data a bit more. Also, I think women are more likely to work part-time than men. So I think even if you get all the data completely right, which is very, very difficult, like weight it for um, profession, hours, words, skill level, qualification, they're still men are probably still going to be paid more and they're still going to be discrimination probably involved in it somewhere but I think to the extent is very misleading if men are more likely to go and study chemical engineering maths economics and stuff at university they're going to be more likely to earn more than women especially if they're making career choices and life choices that are based on a career whereas obviously obviously women with their biological <laughs> setup they have children that also affects your career choices and how quickly you climb up the career ladder. So I think in terms of the discrimination, it's probably more due to social condition, in my opinion. This is my personal theory. From when we're young as boys and girls, boys may be more ushered to mathematics and girls may be more ushered to other subjects. And then this kind of seeps through until when we go to university or leaving college in sixth form, the certain um, life choices and career decisions we make. I personally believe that there should be no boy subjects and girl subjects. You should just see what kids want to do, what skills they have, and push them towards it. I think that's more efficient. 
that's a story for another day. I will get into that in more detail. Um, NHS problem is just funding. Yeah, tax the rich more. NHS will be better. Okay, there is a funding problem with NHS. Um, as I said on my NHS podcast with my boy, Dr. Lee. Uh, if you compare us, we can't compare just to any random nation. You've got to compare to nations that have similar cultural values or maybe similar economies, which is quite difficult. So if you compare us to like France, um, the Nordic nations, um, the United States, Germany, on a per capita, so on a per individual basis, and just GDP and the economy in general, we spend less than those countries on healthcare. We expect uh, the members of staff in the healthcare industry so they say efficient, and I'm doing this in commas, but really just means stretch them. Stretch them like, I don't even know, I haven't got time to make any flipping um, adjectives. But I've got a few close loved ones who work in that field, and they get stretched like a madness. So there is a funding issue. However, with the nature of medicine, medicine is the costs are going to rise and rise and rise and rise and rise. And you simply can't just use basic taxation to fund it as well as me and my boy were discussing you have to do you have to explore different things and i think art the problem with the nhs is also a cultural in the uk we are entitled beyond the realms of imagination people because they're actually not paying for it at the point of contacts obviously you're paying for it via national insurance and tax and stuff but you're not actually paying in your hospital people will go to hospital for nonsense like my boy was telling me dr lee somebody came in for a hiccup a flipping hiccup, cuz. That's that's disgusting. You're an A&E for hiccup. Also, people just miss appointments. It costs the NHS billions just missing appointments. So, we have to change the culture. There's not... Going to a hospital or GP should be last resort. People should... Like, we need to make the country aware of the resources available to us. There's so many resources, especially online. And if we kind of change the culture... Maybe that, as well as change the funding in NHS, then we can may have we may see some improvements. But the toys gonna destroy it anyway, so boy, it is what it is. Um, this is a bit more uh, pop culture in terms of football. English plays are more expensive than others. No, people don't just pay more for you because your passport is red and your name is Jamie. No, that that no. The difference is the English football, the Premier League, is the richest league in the world. If you look at the top 10 teams according to Forbes and Deloitte in terms of finances, the the six, number one to six in the Premier League this year, so that's um, in order, Chelsea, Spurs, Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal, Manchester United, all six teams are in the top 10 in terms of finances. The Premier League makes the most money via TV deals and, um, and marketing. I think something like um, Sunderland, who finished 20th, they got relegated. They made more money via their TV deal than, I think, 19 of the Italian teams. That's how much money is pumped into the English game. So if every man in England's got loads of money and, a, and most English players play in the English league... You, the money you're going to offer to buy somebody else's player is going to be more than it's going to be on the continent because the teams that you're trying to price a player have money. So you dangling a certain change in front of them is not going to be as impressive if you're doing it to somebody maybe in the Russian league where they don't have as much money. You see what I'm saying? So that's why English players tend to cost more simply because 
the money in the English game. It's not just because they're English. For example, who got um, Manchester United just bought um, Romelu Lukaku from Everton. He costs seventy-five million pounds plus apparently fifteen million adults. That's ninety million pounds. He's not English, but because Everton are in the Premier League and they are a rich team, they even got a rich owner. If you're gonna buy one of their, their best player, you're gonna have to pay the price. And also, we gotta remember that the pound is stronger than the euro. So, if you're purchasing players from other leagues, you're not putting pounds in a bank account. You're putting euros in a bank account. And obviously, so you have to, so you have to take into into consideration conversion rates. Now, another one. Um, this one's more social. This is the last one. Black people and aggression. I've had this debate with my boys in our own group chat. Um, we've had heated debates. Not heated, but quite um, extensive debates. We disagree and agree on certain things. Like, we see the aggression tab, um, especially attributed to black women, I think is a complete load of nonsense, and here's my opinion on it. Why? So I can't really say this is fake news, but because it's opinions, but is what it is. Aggression is a form of emotion, right? As is happiness or whatnot. My personal theory is um, black, I don't like using the term black, African, Caribbean, African-American or South American, culturally we're different to Western Europeans. We're more expressive in everything we do, in our music, in our dancing, in our dressing, everything. We're just our hairstyles, we're just more expressive and more vibrant than Western Europeans who tend to be a bit more reserved in nature. All you have to do is go to the different countries. I've lived in I've lived in the UK. I've been to various cities in the UK. I've been to Spain. I've been to France. I've been to America as well. And I've been to Nigeria. And I tell you what, <laughs> I saw a lot more um, expression in all the emotions in Nigeria than in any other place I've ever been to. So we, if we bear this in mind, and then now we look at, let's say, the, in the Western world, if we're different culturally, our happiness or our anger is going to be probably a bit more extreme-looking in comparison to how it's, um, it's um, emitted by a Western European. How we may deal with conflict or how we may deal, how how we may behave in a party or a wedding is going to be a bit more, let's say, extreme in comparison because Western Europeans tend to be more reserved, as I said. So, when you talk about aggression, aggression, let's say we're in the UK, is always going to be determined and um, scaled and measured in comparison to British culture. Do you see what I'm saying? So they will always judge your emotions on their scaling. What may be deemed as aggressive and rude in the UK may be just calm conversation in Nigeria or in Brazil or in, let's say, predominantly black areas in Atlanta. So the scaling is different. So just because we, and I say we as African and Caribbean people, may not react to the same scaling as, let's say, Western Europeans, does not mean we're more aggressive. We could just be a bit more expressive in our nature. You see what I'm saying? So this is seen as aggressive. I'm sure plenty of people in their workplaces have just been, you know, firm in their 
disprove or disagreeance or putting forward that point and they've been described as sassy or aggressive and all that type of bollocks. So you're just thinking, what? Well, I was just being normal. It's just that we're just different. And our different could be determined as aggression sometimes. And I think that's just wrong. Just because it's not in line with your culture does not mean it's wrong. It just means it's different. I, I, I don't buy that. And also, especially when we're on the on topic of um, black women, I am probably speak for personal experience. But I've seen more... F- um, and when I say I've seen, I'm even, I'm even, I'm even waiting it in terms of, obviously, I've, I'll see more white people than black people, even on a percentage basis, I've seen more aggression from British uh, white females than African-Caribbean black females. The difference is, and and men as well, the difference is we are kind of deemed more threatening for whatever reason. Any act from us is always automatically deemed as more threatening. I've seen, (laughs) in my time, I've seen... um, British women go off in the office, like shouting, screaming, going mad. If I raise my voice, people look at me like, oh my God, don't shoot, don't shoot. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? I've seen boyfriends get shouted at head, blasted in Topshop, blasted, slapped, drinks thrown at them, screamed in their face and all sorts. To me, that's pretty aggressive. But they're not deemed as threatening. If, uh, let's say, an African or Caribbean woman wants to do the same, the way people react to be completely different. I've seen it. It's happened to me myself. I've seen people shout and go off in the workplace. The moment I'm assertive, like, nah, I don't think you should talk to me like that, people move in like, right, he's about to come and shoot up this whole place. So I, I personally believe that when you're talking about aggression, it's, first of all, it's very difficult to measure. And also, you've got to look at what environment you're in and how it, and what cultures are you referring to? Because diff- aggression, happiness, etc., all these different emotions are depicted in different ways in different culture. And that's because one culture does it one way doesn't mean it's wrong or right. Uh, I think that's just in, in, an inaccurate way to measure things. And I think I'm going to leave it there. So yeah, this is my podcast on fake news. If you any disagreements or any feedback or whatever you want to say, just hit me up on my socials, Dysonomics on Twitter, Dysonomics on Instagram. I'm not sure how much help Instagram is. But yeah, please like and subscribe on... No, not like and subscribe. Like and retweet and follow on SoundCloud, Dysonomics on SoundCloud. Or if you're listening to this on iTunes, please subscribe so it comes to your phone automatically or whatever device you're using. And give me a cheeky five stars so I can go up the ladder. I ain't seen nobody bad as hard. I'ma get this money, I'ma grab it up. I've been stacking, I've been stacking. Just wait till I turn up. Turn up. Flip this money, then we stack it up. Burning bridges, niggas acting up. She on my body like I'm tatted up. Podcast Network.